be seated and kids you can start making your way back to your class and kids a question for you that you can bring up at lunch I mean we have Mother's Day and we have Father's Day but when's the kids day there's no kids day every day is a kids day that's right every day is yours so at least give us one out of the 365 but as they go back, a couple of things, just kind of announcements and housekeeping. It'll be really helpful if you have one of the bulletins to follow along uh, with that on the back. So you'll be able to follow along there. And thank you for everyone who is praying for us and have inquired about our trip. The MCO medical mission trip was last week, and we went to Ethiopia and had a, a wonderful time. And uh, it was really good uh, for me to see and experience what they do on these trips, because these are things we want to factor in to the life of our church um, throughout, the, throughout the year. So every year we want to uh, help them take part in that. So if you are in the medical field in any way and would like to be a part of one of those trips coming up, we'd love uh, to have you get more information about it. But it was a really, uh, really good trip. And then one kind of housekeeping note about the uh, men's and women's Bible studies that are coming up. We're going to synchronize the study. So both the men and the women are going to be going through Psalm 1. And we're going to be looking at a series of sermons from Martin Lloyd-Jones that he preached on Psalm 1 uh, called True Happiness. And... Uh, one of the guys in the men's Bible study when I told them said, we're going to have a competition. We'll make it a competition with the, the women and see at the end of it who has more happiness, uh, the men or the women. But we're going to look at true happiness, and we would love for you to kind of connect and engage, and they're based on a series of sermons. So in our podcast feed each week, I'll upload the sermon uh, from that week that Lloyd-Jones preached, so you can follow along, and then even if you aren't able to make it to one of the different men's and women's Bible studies, you can still follow along and maybe connect with someone. And one of our goals in doing that is to help the, the husband and wives to be able to connect and grow together over these things so you can uh, follow along that way. Now for this morning, we're going to be in uh, Revelation chapter 7. So uh, thank you to Julio and Dave for preaching for me while I was gone. So we appreciate that. They were looking at Revelation 7. So we'll be three weeks here in Revelation 7. And what we're doing is we're doing um, kind of uh, snapshots all through the book of Revelation. And our theme is uh, the, the victory of Jesus and the vision of Trinity. And we're looking at these different snapshots asking the question, what type of church does Jesus want us to be in life? light of the, the reality of the resurrection. So in Revelation chapter 21, Jesus is risen, he's ruling, he's reigning, he's on his throne, and he says, behold, I am making all things new. And so the book of Revelation is an invitation to us to join him as he's making all things new. So the risen, ruling, reigning Christ is restoring and redeeming all things. And to kind of help you with the categories, uh, he almost has three kind of great restoration projects. And the first one is he's making you new. He makes new people. That if we are in Christ, we're a new creation and the old is gone and the new has come and he's transforming us so we can be changed and our character can uh, conform to the image of Christ. We can become like him. He makes you new. And then he makes a community new, new people. And then he makes the creation new, the new world. And he's doing all of those things, and he gives us an invitation, issues an invitation to join him as he's making people new, a community new, and then the world new. 
And what we're going to see here in Revelation 7 is this beautiful picture of the type of community that he's creating. So what type of community that he is he creating and what we do is we kind of get a vision of the community at the end what's it going to be like at the end it's like one of the one of the seven habits of highly effective people is they they look at the end and then they work backwards from the end so they have the, the end in mind and he gives us in revelation this picture of what the community he's creating is going to be like what she's moving towards and so he wants us to be a type of community that reflects Revelation 7. So our calling is to be a people that reflects Revelation 7. And in this life, we'll never perfect it, but we are called to reflect it. And I think if you just, I mean, this, I don't need to belabor this point, but we live in a fractured world. We live in a divided world, and our world desperately needs Revelation 7 reflecting communities. You know, I was thinking about this week how, you know, how easy it is to turn anything into a source of division among people. When I was in middle school, and elementary school, middle school, first part of high school, I was a bus rider. And I think you probably learn more about life on the bus than you actually do in school. And in middle school, you know, we had a little pack of kind of kids and we had, to, we had to band together for survival. And one day I got on the bus and one of my buddies, Michael Milligan, was in the back of the bus and he was crying. And it's like when one of yours is crying, you have to all rally around and we're like, all right, we got to rally. We got to like perform the wall so none of the older kids see him. They can't see him crying because it'll just get worse. And, you know, his like nose was bleeding. His hair was everywhere. But that was normal. That's the way it always was. But nose was bleeding. Shirt was like ripped. And he was crying like, what happened? And then he starts like motivating us like, come on, boys, we got to get revenge. And there was these big, like, eighth grade bullies who had beaten him up. And then we start, like, kind of unraveling what happened and uh, come to find out he had gotten in a fight with them over Ford. And what he kept saying is he kept saying they, they were just making fun of Ford. And I was like, oh, Ford? Who's Ford? Is this a new kid we don't know? Where is he? I haven't met Ford. And no, he, he wasn't talking about a person. He was talking about the automobile manufacturer. And so Michael's dad worked at Ford and like, you know, he would always say Ford. It stands for first on race day. <laughs> Chevrolet stands for cheap heap. Every valve leaks or every valve rust oil leaks every time and so he had actually gotten into a fight with older kids on the bus because they were making fun of ford cars and he was going to defend ford's honor and then he wanted to rally us to his battle cry i was like i, I mean this might shock you but i'm not a fighter I'm like, I am not, not getting in a fight over four. I, I didn't know this now, but look, I drive a Kia. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I'm like, it, we're so, our, our propensity is to turn anything into a source of division and conflict and contention. And what we're going to see in Revelation 7 is two kind of elements of this community that he's creating. And one is that it's a unified but diverse community. So there's a diverse uh, diversity, and then it's a delivered community. 
as a community that's received and experienced redemption. So let's kind of walk through those two pieces. And the whole time I want us to be thinking, all right, how can we, one, experience this and then express it in our life together? So let's think about the first thing, the diverse community. And let's read. We'll start in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 7 and then move on through. So after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes, and they have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. And the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, and he will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. So what I want us to see here is a couple things, and one is that first around the throne, look at verse 9 and then 10, because around the throne is this glorious kind of multi-ethnic, multinational, diverse community, and this is his design. This is his design for his people, and what I want you to is notice kind of the fourfold distinction he gives kind of four characteristics. Four in Revelation is the symbol of the earth, going to the four corners of the earth. So it symbolizes the totality of the earth. And it's four things. It's nation, tribe, people, language. And just kind of think through those for a second. A couple things really interesting. Nation is actually singular. So it's kind of odd. I wonder why. And then tribes, peoples, languages. So nation, and uh, can you see the fourfold structure? If you kind of look at the first and look at the last one, these are kind of given the broad categories. Categories, the nation and then the language. And then the two middle ones kind of zero in on your, kind of your people, your, your tribe. Tribe, uh, when the Bible uses tribe, it doesn't necessarily use it like we think of. So if you're thinking tribes like Seth Godin's, we live in a world of tribes and the internet creates all these different tribes. Tribes here is uh, f uh, families, blood ties, kin, your, your family. So think about like the 12 tribes. There are 12 families. So tribe is a subgroup of the nation that's distinct by bloodlines. So if you come from a more traditional culture, like your family, your kin, that's the most important community in your life. It's family. But then the second word, peoples, is a little interesting. It's peoples, and what it's getting at is basically your, your people that share a common culture. Uh, this is, you have common cultural bonds or kind of ties to a specific location and place. These, in essence, kind of like how, have you ever heard somebody say, like, the first time they met someone and they just instantly clicked and there was all this chemistry and they just felt like we, we just get one another? And they say things like, all right, these are my people. That's actually using the term like it's used here, kind of the people that you share a common culture with. 
that you see the world in similar, through similar lenses. And what's so fascinating is he's kind of giving us in the four corners, in these four words, he's given us a summation of all the different things that could distinguish us from one another. So nationality and language, and then culture, and then family. And so what this is getting at, one of the things it's telling us, is that the unity here in Revelation 7 is a whole lot larger than just ethnic, uh, ethnic unity or racial unity. The real diversity is so much deeper. And so actually just take a few minutes. I want to do a little interactive kind of time where you take a few minutes and look at your, look at your bulletin. And I want you to think for a second, all right, what are... If you had to categorize all the different distinctions that we can make, or all the different things that can cause division, what are we, what are we talking about? So it could be things like social, or racial, or educational, or political. You know, think about like Bill Clinton's line when he said, our cabinet, we have the most diverse cabinet in U.S. history, but every single person on his cabinet went to one of three schools. So well, it wasn't diverse at all. So there wasn't educational diversity. So actually, what are the different categories that create real diversity? Or just think about your own heart. Think about, think about, and I don't know if diversity is the right word, but think about the diversity in your own, maybe dividedness in your own soul. Like, think about each week when you come in and out of church, think about the diversity of emotional states you can just come in here with. Like, you can come in here excited and energetic. You can come in here apathetic. You can come in here sleepy. You can come in here distracted. Just in your own mind, you can have a diversity of emotional engagements with coming in. Or think about just the different place that people are in in their life. So think for a minute. Think for a second and just, all right, what are the different categories for distinctions that are in our world? Can you think of any other ones that aren't on the, on the list on your paper? Personality. Personality, yeah. yeah. You have different personalities. Sometimes you can have a diversity of personalities in the same person. And then think, when was the last time the reality of a difference affected you? Like, can you remember the last time you were an outsider? And it was obvious. You felt it. You know, we were on a, a trip this past week to Ethiopia. It was very obvious who the outsiders were. When do you feel it? When was the last time you had that experience? And then how did, you, how did you respond? And then think as a church, what are ways we can uh, bring down those dividing walls? Be agents of healing, agents of hope. I mean, some of you know what it's like to live in a constant state of sensing like you're an outsider. And I think the kind of diversity that Christ celebrates and is creating is something that's more than just ethnic. It covers all the different ranges and realities that we can experience. But if we're going to reflect this, we have to start with the divisions in our own backyard. So what are the key divisions in this community we live in? 
Think about your neighborhood, your street, your kid's soccer team, or whatever they do. What are the, the divisions there that are there? And then how can we bridge those? And then this is kind of a side, but I think it's worth thinking about. And I think it's one of the more exciting things to look as you look at the, uh, the trajectory of the church's growth and expansion throughout, you know, history. Um, it is a, you know, it, for proportionally the percentage of the highest demographic of Christians in our country are African-American women. And then you look at, at throughout the world, in a few years, there'll be more Christians living in China than any other country on the planet. You look at just the different uh, dynamics. You know, it's fascinating to study this past year. One of, the, one of the coolest books I read this year, I got a whole list of books if you'd like to read more about this, because it's a fascinating phenomenon. But one of them is called the, the African Memory of Mark. And the evangelist Mark, who wrote the Gospel Mark, was the first church planner who planted a church in Africa. And one of the very first churches planted, and uh, was planted by Mark in Africa. He went to Alexandria, and it's this remarkable story of the gospel planting in Africa. So one of the fun things I could say this week as Westerners, like, we don't come bringing the gospel to you. It was yours before it was ours. And Laman Sane, who, was, uh, who passed away this past year, was a professor of world religions at, uh, taught at Yale and Harvard, has this fascinating book called Whose Religion is Christianity Anyway? And he's from Gambia. And he said, look, it was ours before it was yours. And he's exactly right. And then you just kind of look at the shape of the world. If you're on our email list, I sent out an article yesterday of how uh, you can look in the Middle East, because in the Middle East, it's the home of the world's oldest, uh, most persecuted churches in the world. But they're also some of the fastest growing. And it's remarkable what's happening in a place like Iran. One of the things I used to like to say in Alabama is you look at like around the world, um, like in South Korea, you have, you know, nine of the 10 largest churches in the world are in South Korea. Like we talk about mega churches and are so proud of our mega churches in America. We have mega churches that wouldn't even count as small groups at some churches in South Korea. More people worship today at the full gospel church in South Korea than will worship in the entire state of Alabama. And then we, th we think that's like the Bible belt because we don't know the clothing of the rest of the world. And so when you look at the, the, the diversity of Christ's church, it really is amazing. It's an extraordinary story. There's no institution like it. And we should celebrate and be proud of it. But now look here, because one of the keys is what brings this unity? And there's three things that they have in common here in verse 9. They have a common place, they have a common dress, and they have a common voice. So notice, where's their place? They are all standing before the throne. See, at the throne, it's a leveler. And they've all, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, they've come and they are together, united. It's their standing. It's a place they stand before him. You only have access. The only way you get into his presence is by repenting of your sin and then being born again. And they can stand before the throne. And notice they're all dressed, same clothes, white robes, dipped in the blood of the lamb. And then what's so fascinating is, Look in verse 10. They have one voice. It's they all cried out, the multitude, but then the voice is actually singular. They all cried out with one voice. And if you just kind of use your imagination and think, one of the kind of marvels of Christian worship is that today, 
In the last 24 hours, the praises of the living Lord have been sung in Japanese, and it's been sung in Swahili, and it's been sung in Arabic, and now we get to take part and lift up our little bitty voice in English to join in with one voice in the creation-wide choir that's singing his praise. That's what worship is. We're adding our voice to the uh, worldwide voice. They have a common place, a common dress, and a common voice. And that actually kind of help kind of undercut a lot of the tensions we can have in worship because you can have different tunes, different melodies, different instrumentations, different parts, uh, but we all are singing one song. It's a song of praise for the redemption. Salvation belongs to our, our our God. And that's what gives and brings and fuels the unity. So this community is a remarkably diverse community. And so one of the questions is, how does God want us to reflect that here in our community? But the next thing I want you to see, the second thing is that it's also a delivered community. And what I mean here is there's so many echoes here of the Exodus. You know, one of the reasons they're holding the palm branches is because this is a, a reference to Pentecost when they're celebrating the first fruits. And these are people who, in essence, uh, they've sheltered under the blood of the lamb. And then from the blood of the lamb, they've been brought out and they've come to the end of their journey. And so now they're, they're at their father's home. And he's been proven to be the good shepherd who will lead them to a place of safety and security. So they're a community that's delivered. In one sense, they're looking back on the redemption they've experienced. And in essence saying, we've made it. We've made it. He brought us all the way to this point. And so these are, these are a Pentecost people who've been washed in the blood and have come to their final destination. They made it. They fought the good fight. They've run the race. They've finished. And now they can sing and celebrate. But a couple things start in verse 15. Notice what he does. There's what he's going to do and then who he is. So they praise him because of what he does. And it's his presence, his provisions, his protection. Therefore, they are before the throne and they serve him day and night in his temple. Same, serve is the same word for worship. You could translate either way. Serve or worship. Because those two are two twin dynamics of the same reality. Serve one another is the horizontal um, uh, view of our vertical worship. So they serve him day and night. He who sits on the throne. Now, it's, he is the shelter. His presence shelters them. So fascinating, the connections with the gospel of John. This is the same word for tabernacles. This is he tabernacles. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh, and the Word, it dwelt, it tabernacled, it sheltered among us, and He's the one who shelters, who dwells with them. They are pilgrim people on this journey, but His, his tent tabernacles and walks with them. And so the first thing that they experience is they experience His presence. And this is the core fundamental reality of what it means to be His people. We are a people of the presence. We experience and know and enter into His presence. And His presence that's sheltering. And it comes through as they gather together at the tabernacle. But then notice His provisions. And one of the things I love this sentence because, you know, anytime I love to see when I read in the Bible, poor grammar, it makes me happy. 
Because not only, because you know, your English to teacher told you never have a double negative. You ain't, can't say like two negatives at the same time, even though sometimes it's just appropriate. Well, in this sentence, you not only get double negatives, you get five of them. I don't even know what that's like a pentuplet negative or whatever that would be. He gives you five of them, and it's almost like this emphatic no. There's no hunger, no thirst, no sun, no beating heat. It's no. All of it is, is negated. It's gone. And the first one, the provisions, is no more hunger. And then no more thirst. You are a pilgrim people traveling through the desert, through the wilderness, constantly wondering, where will my food come from? Where will water come from? And he's provided it all. It's almost like they've heard him say, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me will never hunger again. Or I am the water of life. Whoever comes to me will never thirst again. And they're saying, it's true. He said it, and then he did it. We, we no more hunger, no more thirst. The heat of the sun won't beat down on us any longer. He provides the provisions. And then we then give of what we received, his provisions and his protection. Those three things. So think about those things. How have you experienced those things? His presence, his provisions, his protection. Then part of our calling as a church is then to extend that, to then experience and then express it. His presence, his provision, his protection. Who in this community needs the sheltering presence of the Lord? Who needs a refuge to run to, to find safety and security? But then notice the next thing is what this comes from in verse 17. It's for for this is why he's doing these things because of who Jesus is and who God is notice what it says the lamb the lamb and it's so fascinating I don't know these can't be coincidences but 28 times in Revelation Jesus is called the lamb you know four for each corn the, the totality of the world and seven the number of recreation he's called the lamb and remember the lamb from Revelation 5 He's the lion who, was, who uh, is standing and the lamb who has been slain. But the lamb is in the middle of the throne. And then there's interesting, two interesting words, because these actually, shepherding and guiding, these actually are, are participles. So a good way to translate participles is just add I-N-G to them. So we're like running, jumping, it's things that you're actively doing. And here the participles actually are shepherding and guiding. So really you say he, the lamb is shepherding them. Isn't that ironic? You know, you have shepherds who shepherd lambs, but it's the lamb who's shepherding the other lambs because he's, he's one of us. And so the lamb is shepherding them. He's tending them. He's, he's caring for them and he's guiding. And what he's doing is he's guiding them, shepherding them, tending them, and he's leading them to springs of living water. So they're his flock, they're moving through the wilderness, and the lamb is their shepherd who's tending to them and leading them to the place of life-giving water. And then this really struck me this week, because notice then who does, the next thing is, notice who does the tear wiping. It's, and God, God the Father, on the throne, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So maybe a helpful Father's Day meditation for us is to think that the primary act of the Father in Revelation is as a tear wiper. 
And I don't know what that makes you think of if you've ever thought of kind of what is real biblical masculinity? What is biblical strength? The image here is the father who's a tear wiper. And maybe it's just the life stage that we're in with four very young children. I feel like the thing I say more than anything else is, why are you crying? (laughs) Why are you crying? And part of the wisdom needed as a father is to discern which reasons are legitimate and which ones are not. Because some are legitimate. And, and that's the, the act and the role of, of the father. And sometimes I even have Tom Hanks' voice just lingering in my head. There's no crying in baseball. <laughs> I'm like, come on, kids, there's no crying here. Why are you crying? Stop it. Men don't cry. And I'm thinking, is that true? What's the image you see here? You actually see the father who is the father who's the tear wiper. And it just, it got me thinking, where do my children naturally run with their tears? Do they naturally run to the father or do they go somewhere else where they know they'll get actual care and compassion and concern? And here the image is that the father's the tear wiper. And one of the things when you think about, all right, what does it mean first? Maybe you've never experienced that type of fatherly love and care and um, run to this father. Because that's who he is and what he does. And then maybe you can reflect that. Once you've experienced that from him, you can reflect it. And I think one of the great callings for our church is what does it mean we exist to be a tear wiping organization? Until you stand complete in his presence where he does it, he wipes your tears in the end, we do it now. So who's crying tears in our community? Where do they come from? What causes them? And part of our role and responsibility as an organization is to wipe them away. And part of what it means to wipe away tears is you don't just offer care and compassion. You have to go at the cause of why the tears are happening to begin with. You have to do both. And then here he is. So think about that for a moment. Just pause and think about your own life. You know, one of the things about our community is I think it's going to be hard for us to discern the cause of the tears. Because probably not many people are going to cry them in public. But there'll be a lot of secret tears. So I ask, all right, why? Where are they coming from? How do we engage? How do we enter in? So think about your own life. What are the things that are causing my tears? And then what are the things that are causing them in this community? I heard a powerful story this week from one of my uh, favorite pastors. who's an Australian pastor. He's a young guy named Mark Sayers and has written a couple really good books. He has a podcast called This Cultural Moment and just really uh, can analyze the culture that we're living in in the West just in a remarkably skilled fashion. And he was telling his, his testimony, his story. And his grandmother was a Welsh slave who was raped by her owner. And then in her rage, she became pregnant. In her rage, she took the baby and threw him in the river. And then was caught, and then tried, and convicted, and then sentenced to life in prison in Australia, and shipped away to Australia. And then when she got to Australia, one of the local pastors would come in every week, and he'd just wipe away her tears. 
And then eventually the Lord restored her, renewed her. And then now just kind of this remarkable irony is now her son is one of the leading, you know, uh, Christian figures in Australia. It's a remarkable testimony. And it has its roots in one simple, humble person who saw tears in his community and said, I'm going to wipe them away. I'm going to do what our father's going to do. Who's crying tears in this community? And who will do the slow, steady, silent work of wiping them away? So let's spend a few minutes and shift and transition and pray and pray that we will be a type of people that reflect the diversity of Revelation 7 and then experience and express the ministry of Revelation 7. That will be our community, what marks the community. So, Lord, we praise you for your word. We thank you that you've made us in your own image and that you've redeemed us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we praise you that you look with compassion upon us and we ask that you would help us. We freely confess that we live in a deeply divided society. And, Lord, as we look out on it, we ask that you would cause its divisions to break our hearts that you would take away the arrogance that fuels them, that you would take away the hatred that fuels them, that so easy can infect our own hearts. We pray that you would break down the walls that we, uh, we put up to separate us, no matter how significant we think they are. We pray that you would unite us into bonds of love and work through our struggle and confusion to accomplish your purposes on earth and tell in your good time. All nations, all people, all tribes, all tongues will surround your throne singing your praises. So we thank you that you've created all people in your image and that you, um, we thank you for the reflection and reality of the Trinity, that in the Trinity we have the ultimate example of unity and diversity, unity as one and then yet diversity as three. And so we pray that we would reflect that. We ask that you help us to see your presence and those who differ from us and that you would enrich our lives with their fellowship and knowing one another until we are perfect and complete around your throne. And now, Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear those who are struggling, those who are suffering. I pray that you would help us to um, have the courage to look and see what are the things that are causing those and have the wisdom and the courage to fight against those things. And we pray that out of your, your great mercy, you would, for anyone who's come in this room this morning silently, weeping and crying tears, come by faith, they confess their sins and they turn to him as the Savior and they gladly sing the song of salvation belongs to our God. Salvation is to him and from him and through him. And we confess our sins and confess that he's a great Savior. So here we have four stations. The one in the back corner will be gluten-free. If you have a gluten allergy, you can uh, go there. And once our servers are in place, you come.